Thanks for listening to the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You can contact Phil and John at their Twitter page at twitter.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast or their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Good evening. I am warning you right now, if you touch my drums, I will stab you in the neck with a knife. Ain't a bucket. Ain't a bucket. Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I don't I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. Are we going to straighten out? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. Next! Little trouble there. You're rushing. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Hi, John. How are you? Phil, doing good. I had a day of preparation. Do tell. Oh, just dumped a bunch of tunes in my lap, learned these, and uh, to hear the gigs. And so, per our last conversation, um, I was knee-deep in our advice, and I think I did okay. See, kids. We are not the proverbial. Uh, what's the old saying? Uh, do what I or what it's what is it? Do what I say, not what I do. We actually do what we say. Yes, we right. Do. We we have to. We so have to. It's not like it's some noble thing. It's <laughs> out of like not making fools of ourselves and getting called back. So let's call a spade a spade. Absolutely, and and you know to kind of elaborate on what John's talking about. What actually happened this week, he's, he's had a crazy busy week this week. And uh, he had a, a whole pile of gigs dumped on him at the pretty much the last minute, right? Yeah. And uh, John, just tell him kind of what you've been doing. Well, it was a producer friend of mine, a project he's working on, and they needed to make some changes with personnel kind of step up the game a little bit and thankfully he trusts me to be a part of that so a lot of original stuff um which you just got to dig in and learn that's just how it is you know did you make some charts yep i did um i mean i charted everything even some of the you know covers that were pretty true to form but just for comfort and the amount of tunes, it's, I think it was, it's almost two hours of music. So th- that in itself makes it worthwhile to just kind of lock it down and, and have those notes and maps and charts uh, to, to ease that pain and the concentration level and all that. But just coming in prepared, as we talked about, I mean, there were songs we played once. Because they just went well, and everybody came ready to get on it and prepared, and it was really cool to to really kind of just be in the middle of that after we talked about it, and you know, I did my part, and fortunately everybody else did their part, and we went to lunch early on the second rehearsal. Early so, lunch is I, I mean, love it, you know. See, there our fellow podcasters 
you got our guys here that talking to you. We're practicing what we preach, you know? Yes, yes. <clears throat> and it just, man, it's, it makes things a lot easier. Yeah. You're not, you're not, oh, yeah, what, where, where was the, what, what happened on that bridge? And, and, you know, this is a gig too where, um, man, there were four or five tunes kind of in a real similar tempo kind of vibe mm-hmm. musically, you know, and, that stuff can really run together when you're cramming and it's all, you know, coming at you fresh and all that. So all that uh, extra effort made it worthwhile. Did you fall back on your metronome from time to time? There, I used it the first day 111% of the time. And probably more than anything just to make me bulletproof and not have someone question anything. But uh, yeah, that it, it's just a great equalizer too. When you're talking about four players who've never played together, mm-hmm. all great, everybody having their act together, but man, it, it just kind of keeps things in check. And um, I was the only one referencing it, which yeah, sometimes can be difficult. But when it's really good players. Um, you know, I, I, I've been in situations where you're kind of bagging it a verse and a chorus in because you almost have to. But, yep. man, I did, you know, a three-hour rehearsal the other day and pretty much leaned on that click the whole time. So that that's a good sign. That's yeah. a Well, <clears throat> we wanted to open up today with that a little bit just to show you that uh, we are men of our word when yes. it comes to uh, following our own advice. But... Um, also, before we jump into today's topic, just wanted to say that that the response so far uh, from all the folks that have listened to the first two episodes, uh, it has been quite gratifying. We, we greatly appreciate your response, your uh, helpful little tips when it comes especially to the, 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 the audio engineering portion, which by the way, John, I would like to tell you I got... A, and I will say that it was a friendly phone call, but with somewhat of a terse tone. <laughs> that was a, a, a friend, engineer friend of mine called me today. I'd listened to it, and he's he's somewhat of a button up fellow, right? You know, but uh, you know he he he. I think the exact words he called me. He called me an audio engineering neophyte. Uh, <laughs> you know what that makes me. <laughs> A, a radio <laughs> listener, <laughs> but the, the the basic thing was he was he was uh, trying to be very clinical. He he tried to put on his like uh, uh, white lab coat and his clipboard and sit down and and tell me the error of my ways upon recording the the podcast. Even though he did give a hearty thumbs up to the content, which uh, I think we can stick our chest out a little bit on that so far. So that's that's good. pretty good. I really mean, at the end of the day, come on. That that that's what's gonna drive, yeah, the interest, you know, and and even, I mean, the first one we did, I, I didn't even <clears throat> notice plosives. What's a plosive between you know, friends, huh? right? What and and of course after it was pointed out, I noticed. It, yeah, but you know, I mean, it, it, it be engaging and hopefully we touch on plenty that, uh, you know. Uh, that kind of stuff is really not going to be. Well, you know, when you and I first started talking about this, the the entire concept was we wanted it to be different. 
from other podcasts. We wanted it to be like when we just when we're hanging out, like for having lunch, if we're just talking on the phone, we're just talking about shop. We're talking about you know things that matter to other drummers and other musicians. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times we don't see or don't hear those kind of things covered really in in any format. Honestly, a lot of times, I mean, you know, let's just be honest. When it's with drummers, we're talking. If we're talking educational stuff, we're talking about patterns and rudiments and stuff. Very seldom do we talk about conceptual things, which is, in my opinion, sorely lacking in, in, in our educational community. Or the other aspect we talk about is gear, which we do talk a little bit on here about. Mm-hmm. And then we also have therapy. True. You know, I, I think it's really... Uh, it, it ultimately comes down to... This is sort of a continuation of a million conversations you and I have had. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've had with other drummers. And you know, in saying that, it's like, God, I wish we were rolling tape on 50 conversations we've had before because just some incredibly you know, focused and useful and 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 just engaging stuff that we've talked about for years and I have with plenty of people just going to lunch with a few drummers and blah 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 and it's like you know Mm -hmm. in jumping into this I'm like god man if I would have recorded you know conversations from the past this would be just it'd be so fun to listen back and well I, I you know I've always thought that that the reason this hasn't been done or that I'm not aware that it's been done before in the past is that I think a lot of people they feel like the other listeners may not find it as engaging and honestly I really didn't kind of know what to expect either but so far every response that I've gotten has been extremely positive from the standpoint that it is what it is you know and that we're not you know, sitting here talking about, you know, the inner workings of a goofadiddle, which was brought up in that conversation today, by the way, you know, you know, that we're sitting here talking about conceptual things and things that could apply, of course, to drummers, but to other musicians as well. And therapy. That. By the way, John is wearing a uh, white lab coat and a clipboard, and I am laying prone for this podcast. So... Take take with that what you will. Sounds kinky. <laughs> but uh, today, we'll go ahead and dive into our topic for the day. Let's do it. Yeah, and uh, this is a topic you're going to get some vastly varying opinions on because you're going to be listening to two fellas that have taken two separate paths. Uh, and those paths are the way we did our education, the way we learned how to play drums, that sort of thing. And so, and by the way, let me say this, the, the, this, this path that we're talking about is not necessarily talking about, you know, kids who are eight or nine years old that are picking up sticks. We're talking about when you get a little bit older, when you get to be your late teens or so, and you have to start making some hard decisions about life. In other words, are you going to try to do this for a living? And if you are going to try to do this, how are you going to educate yourself? And, you know, quite honestly, the, the two primary ways to go about doing that is to attend some kind of a higher learning institution, a college, a trade school, that sort of thing, or to get some 
on the road, on the job experience. Go out and just start playing. And uh, I took the former, which was go to college and learn music that way. And John took the latter. He went out, started playing on the road, started playing gigs. And we both, you know, have got ample experience on both sides of the fence there. And we're going to talk to you about it and kind of how we arrived at it and, and how it's in a lot of ways changed also since, mm-hmm. uh, you know, since when we first started. So to kind of jump off uh, and get started on this, the first thing, and it cannot be underestimated, is you have to have a decision on exactly what you want to do, or you have to decide what path you want to take. And basically, I think that you can kind of boil it down in a few different ways, and you can either choose, hey, I want to try to be this well-rounded musician that plays a whole variety of different styles. Uh, Anytime the phone rings, I want to be able to pick it up and say, yeah, I feel comfortable doing this job. I'm going to try to educate myself as much as possible through all these different styles that I may not be aware of. And then that kind of leads you towards the path of going into a college situation or some kind of of a higher learning institution for music. And then another different pathway or maybe the big fork in the road is say someone who decides you know I am done with school I'm tired of school in fact some people just hate school and I'm a good player I might have my own band over here I want to try to make it big or try to make a break with this with this band and let's just be honest Every day you're not trying to make it with that band is, is pretty much a day lost because, as we all know, it's not a mystery that there's a, somewhat of a shelf life, mm-hmm. you know, age-wise and whatnot for that. So there's a path of, hey, I've got to go out on the road. I've got to get some on-the-job experience. And so first off, if you can kind of decide which way you want to go with that, you've probably got about you're, – you're better off than – I'd say 75% of most people, because a lot of people just don't know what they want to do. Right. You know? Yeah, that's that's hard. It's, it is, I mean, it's hard at that age, no matter what your passion is or what you think you want to do or where you want to end up. You know, sometimes you think you have it all figured out when you're 18 years old and your parents are dumb and they unfortunately get really smart in about four or five years. <laughs> or thirty, yeah, that too. But <laughs> yeah. but it, it it's yeah. uh, it, it's a uh, man. We're we're getting into some strange territory just in the simple fact that we know eighteen year olds that are focused and mature and mm-hmm. know exactly what they want to do, and we know eighteen year olds that are they're just thinking about what's going to happen Friday night, and neither of those are wrong. But as a musician. It really would serve you well to sit down and think about what kind of drummer you want to be or musician you want to be, but we're specific, specifically talking drums. You know, what is it you want to accomplish? And that's going to dictate somewhat. There's always exceptions to the rule, but that, that, that's going to certainly give you a a clearer picture about the path you should probably take. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one one aspect that we didn't even touch on, and and I certainly don't want to gloss over this, but if if you're a drummer that decides that they want to be a teacher of some some sort as well, whether it be a band director or especially a a college level teacher or professor, you absolutely have to go down the route of yeah. higher education yeah. to be yeah, able to do no that. Question. There's just no question about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's doubly important for somebody who even thinks they have an inkling that they want to do that, that they kind of get their head screwed on correctly and start figuring out how they want to go about doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I can speak from my experience on on what I wanted to do and kind of how I went about doing it and, and, and hopefully uh, kind of shed a little bit of light on how that is also somewhat valid today, if not completely valid today. Um, I chose, I guess, when I was about 16 or 17 years old, that uh, that was the path I was going to take. I was going to go to school and learn as much as I could because, quite honestly, where I grew up, I grew up in a, a rural southern town. And, uh, you know, I, the only thing that I knew was that I didn't know enough. You know, and it was one of those things that I absolutely had to make some decisions on what I was going to do because coming out of that town and not knowing in, not knowing enough uh, as far as like not knowing enough about not only the music business but how to actually play my instrument to where I could gainfully employ myself pretty much sealed my path with what I wanted to do. And I liked school also. That was another thing. That was another aspect of it. So from that time, I had to kind of make some choices as far as like what kind of school that I wanted to go to. And 25 years ago, that was a big deal. Today, that is an enormous deal because tuition rates 25 years ago were honestly a drop in the bucket compared to what they are now. I, I tell, you know, I teach students that, that, that I've sent to Berkeley and I've sent some to Eastman and I've sent some, of course, to state schools as well. But I tell them about when I went to school and, you know, their mind just explodes when I tell them that, the, you know, they almost like pull their wallet like they have enough money in their wallet to pay for when I went to school. But, <laughs> you know, I, it's very important to kind of decide the the type of school you want to go to and and quite honestly you have to really figure out your budgetary constraints on it you know and and I have kind of made a little list there's kind of the great dividing line of three different types of schools and the monetary impact they have on you and first and foremost we've already mentioned just straight up music schools these are schools that teach music professional musicians teaching there. That's all they teach. You've got schools like Berkeley and Eastman and Juilliard. And these schools, quite honestly, it's big bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you're, I suppose if you're, if you want to draw a comparison, it would be somewhat like the Harvard of uh, music schools, so to speak, even though Harvard does have a music program. Uh, but with that, John comes a prize. Significant at this point. A hefty price indeed, yes. Yeah, I just had a student that graduated there uh, a few years ago. At Berkeley? From Berkeley, yeah. And uh, I don't know, his situation, he was very, he was a great player, and he was on scholarship almost the entire time that he was there. But if I were going to be a guessing person from the standpoint, 
of if you were not on scholarship, if you were paying full tuition out of pocket, and then when you add your living, your housing and stuff up in Boston, you could very easily be a cool quarter of a million dollars light by the time you get done. And you're so a musician when you get out of there. He's going to probably need to be a jazz musician then to cover that <laughs> nut, right? I tr- John, I actually tried to stay quiet on that to, to like leave a nice Sorry, on. man. I'm just, <laughs> for, I, for dramatic I, I effect. You know? Yeah. But I think I just find it entertaining that Berkeley is yeah. maybe the most expensive school and it's focused on jazz, you know, the reputation on it. It's kind yeah. of like, oh, if, well, if you know the reality of that, it's like, oh, it's, it, you know, it's tough. And it is. I've been to Berkeley several times uh, up there. And, and let me tell you, it is quite the impressive place. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the facility, you, you, put it to you this way. Once you spend that money, I suppose you know where that money went. You know, because it is, uh, as far as the campus and the facilities that are there, the equipment that's there, it's almost, uh, you almost actually do yourself a disservice because in the real gigging world, a lot of times the studios and the equipment are not as good as what they have at school. True. You know, I mean, Berkeley is top notch when it comes to that type thing. I mean, the studios there are amazing. Yeah, they better be. They had better be. But John and I had this conversation a few weeks ago. And what I tell my students when they come up, uh, the, the, ser- the really serious ones that I have, and we have this conversation that we're having on this podcast right now, I sit down and I tell them, I'm like, you know, there's really only a couple of reasons why you go to Juilliard or why you go to, you know, Eastman or Berkeley or Curtis School of Music. And... That's pretty much because you're going to be networking and going to school with a whole bunch of students that are of like mind with you. And, you know, if you did go to a state school, which we're going to get into here in a second, you would be going to school with like-minded kids too, but it would be one hundredth of the amount of students, right? Right. And John and anybody will tell you that the people that you come up with, whether you go to school with them or even if you go out on the road with them when you're young, chances are you will probably be working with some of them the rest of your life. And that's the way it is with me. I mean, I went to school at two different schools uh, for undergraduate and graduate degree, and I still work with some of those people. Yeah. You know? My best friend is, I met when we were freshmen in college. There you go. We played together for 32 years. Yeah. In a number of different settings, you know, it is really true. Yeah. So, you know, you pay for these fabulous facilities, and then you pay to be with a whole bunch of other students that are similar mindset as you, that hopefully want to do the same things that you you do. You guys work together for a long time after that. And that actually, you know, John, that actually includes the faculty as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely dealing with the faculty in that same way because, you know, there's been times that I've played with plenty of faculty members at schools Mm -hmm. that I've gone to, too. And let's face it, they're great at recommending you for other teaching positions if you wanted to do that. True. 
So and playing as well, you know, right? Like a lot of them are out playing. So absolutely, there's just you know even just in the gig world, it's not just your peers, right? And then I tell them the flip side of the Berkeley thing, and that is you're going to be very light in your wallet once you come out of it. And then the other thing is this: let's just be completely and totally honest about things like just classwork. You're going to study music theory. You're going to study ear training. You're going to study music history. You're going to study instrumentation, orchestration. You're going to do all that at any other state school that you go to as well. And the theory at that school is the same as the theory at University of Illinois, which is the same at the University of Colorado, which is the same at the University of South Carolina. Theory is theory. Everybody teaches it maybe just a little bit differently, but I mean, when you're doing figured bass, well, it is what it is. Curriculum too is dictated yeah. on mm-hmm. some level, absolutely from the powers that be. So there's there is going to be a a pretty similar thing by way of what they're teaching. Um, you know, I mean, it's still, I think, still the 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 most rewarding part of going that path is going to be the level of players you play with, the level of players you are developing relationships with. And I mean, a lot of, you know, we, we just mentioned earlier tonight how, how many people went to Berkeley and mentioned all these other insane players that were there when they were there. And it's just an endless, you know, it, it, it's really true. There's going to be some of that. And that can be beneficial, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, bragging rights are, are cool, too. Well, you know, you get into that whole thing also, like we talked about teaching a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Let's just be honest. Most of the time, whenever you get a degree, have you ever been on a gig where anybody's ever asked to look at your degree? No. The only time that the degrees are necessarily valid is when you... Ha- Go to apply for a teaching job. Yeah, that's true. That, you know, that Juilliard diploma looks pretty good. Yeah. Then at that point, you know. Yeah, I've had some I've had some friends that have been incredibly frustrated about the amount of debt they had. And in our typical jaded fashion, they might be like, Yeah, I got my degree and I'm on the same gig as you, John. You know, and that's a real that's a real reality. Yeah that that can creep into your uh, mindset when you're if you're talking about you know now now way more than when we were you know looking at schools and all that but I mean there are people coming out of school now I mean I just got a consumer report it's like my parents gave me a subscription to that and the entire magazine this month is based on this problem with student debt and mm-hmm. it's a major, major issue right now. And it's probably going to get worse. But there's, there's definitely, um, it's got to be part of your decision. Yeah, absolutely. You have, to, you have to be realistic about shouldering that and truly wanting to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Is it possible? Right. It very well could be. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible. But just being aware of it, Making sound decisions is a great thing. Right. I, I, ju- I know that 
and I don't know of anyone, I should say, that likes being in debt. I, I know that coming out of a place like that, being that far in debt, and especially if you wanted to go get a master's degree after that and, and incur more debt, that, man, that would be a hard thing for me to live with, you know? It probably was when you did it. Yeah, you know? But, you know, the other side of that that we were talking about a few minutes ago is the state school. Mm-hmm. And we've already kind of compared and contrasted those two, you know, as far as like the music school and the state school with the biggest things being, you know, it should be significantly cheaper from that standpoint. That is, especially if you stay in state. Now, out of state, you know, the gloves are off. Got to make a wise decision there. Right. And but you get then the thing of what we talked about of you're probably you're going to be in there with some uh, hopefully some like-minded folks as well that want to do the same thing that that you're you want to do it's just the pool will be a lot smaller with that hopefully you get lucky like i did and you end up getting into a very vibrant program where you know it hits just at the right time i was speaking of choices I, the choice that i made i it was an informed choice but it was a lucky choice too mm-hmm. Uh, at the time when I got my undergraduate degree, I was at, at a school at a time where um, the faculty was very engaged and we had a very engaged student population. I mean, we had some real go-getters that it's were It's a real there. fertile environment. Very fertile environment. And, you know, I, I kind of took that for granted and uh, until I left that school, you know, to get my master's degree and then went to the opposite end of the spectrum. And, and I just thought that all schools were like that, you know, and that's not the case, brother. No, as, as we kind of were just going on about earlier with that, um, it's kind of like a lot of programs, football programs, as for an example, mm-hmm. other than the Alabamas and the Michigans and the Ohio States. You know, you kind of have your ups and downs, as most of us who grew up fans of right. most state schools yeah. know. Yeah. You know, it's kind of cyclical at best. And and I think music programs can be that way as well. And at the same time, you know, like a reputation of a specific school. I mean, I'll just take Atlanta, for example. I can think off the top of my head four or five guys who went to the University of Georgia, which is never mentioned as a music school of mm-hmm. note. Right. That are some of my favorite musicians in this town. Yeah. I mean, bar none. Just and you know, it's just gifted individuals who ended up there. Maybe it was financial. Maybe it was, you know, the scene in Athens was attractive to them beyond school. Right. But, but nonetheless, um, you know, there's there were some fertile periods that that school had, and we see and benefit in this town uh, to a period or two of that. So, you know, there's I always kind of think I've had conversations with people where they they're like solely interested in the school because of the reputation of the ensemble. Mm-hmm. That's a real iffy thing because, like a North Texas is a perfect example. Well, there's some really great, the top couple bands are amazing. It gets a little more average as it comes mm-hmm. down. Still really high level and all that. But are you, is it really wise to be focused on the ensemble reputation of the school? Maybe not. I personally think outside looking in 
and knowing what I know now, an individual teacher is going to benefit you a great deal more than the reputation of some amazing ensemble because any halfway decent music school, the big band's going to be pretty solid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to suck. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be 20 guys that can play at a pretty high level and the experience is going to be beneficial to you. Right. So that that factors into some decisions here in higher education that there can be some pitfalls and some, you know, right. false narrative as far as what's important. Absolutely. And, you know, you made a, a fantastic point about the individual teacher, like a private lessons teacher. Let me tell you, you can, you can make or break a college experience with that. And, you know, one thing in particular that, that I think it's, it's, this is good to kind of tie up the thing about the music school versus the state schools. When you have a huge student body at a school like a, a Berkeley or Eastman or what, you know, where you've got just a whole ton of incoming freshmen, the marquee names that you see at these schools, you know, as these teachers, chances are you will never see them or very mm-hmm. seldom will you see them. Yeah, definitely right? not long-term, one-on-one. Exactly. Th- yeah. Those are reserved for, you know, of course, upperclassmen, if not even graduate students. And a lot of times those guys are working professionals and they're on the road quite a bit, That's a good you know, point. at that time. So that can knock the shine off of a lot of those schools and can also knock the shine on a state school in particular if you have uh if there's one particular applied music teacher that you really mesh with which i did ended up being my mentor which is that's almost a whole nother topic for a podcast talking about mentors and the importance of them and uh you know, that kind of thing, finding that right kind of teacher by shopping around a little bit and not necessarily looking at the marquee names can, can be very beneficial for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I can speak from experience in that in my very short-lived, uh, you know, experience with college, I went somewhere where the reputation of the ensemble was pretty, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Long history of... Of, of success and, and just high level. And the individual percussion instructor was just a world-class marimba and mallet player, legitimate stuff, but really focused on like the Japanese marimba stuff that, you know, really heady, difficult. Yeah. And... I had no interest in any of that, you know? I mean, that, that was like, I wanted to play drum set. We'd sit down finally for a lesson on the drum set and we'd do a little playing and he'd be like, oh, what'd you just do there? And I, and I was a little bit better than average freshman drum set player. Right, college, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, I'm, I'm... And I didn't want to be there to begin with, so that was just like, fuel to the fire yeah you know and it really was a poor decision on my part like i didn't did no research into it you know i just was thinking about i gotta get in that jazz band man right Mm -hmm. and then there's a long and sordid history by way of that audition process and the politics oh yeah 
we don't need to get into, but a whole decision, a, a awful decision for me personally. Right. So there's, you can get really, there's a lot to consider. And now, especially when you're talking about this money, man, go out of your way to, to figure this out for you as an individual. A- absolutely. Which is the perfect segue for me to bring in the last school or the right. last type school I want to talk about. And this is going to be the school that will be the last or the least amount of money that you're going to have to come out of pocket with simply from the standpoint that it's a shorter term of, of time that you spend in school. Mm-hmm. And that would be the musical technical school or the musical vocational school. Those are schools like uh, percussive or percussion Institute of technology, PIT, uh, drummers collective, uh, up in New York and, uh, aim Atlanta Institute of music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, these schools, by no stretch of the means, are cheap. It's just that, again, you're a lot of times you're dealing with maybe a one-year program, maybe sometimes a two-year program, you know, with this. So just by virtue of the school's, you know, the school term being significantly shorter, you come out not owing quite as much money if you mm-hmm. have to go that direction. Uh, now... My experience with these schools, I can take them or leave them. I think, again, you have to kind of really know what you want to do. And and the biggest thing I think that, that people should be aware of is when you come out of this school, you kind of get... Uh, you kind of get the uh, proverbial certificate of completion. Thank you for participating is what it is. And uh, what, what did uh, Chris Farley say? That and 50 cents will get you a nice hot cup of Jack squat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, little, so yeah, this is a little. I'm a little. I'll let you. Yeah. So, the, the biggest thing that I think that to to be honest, we have a lot of friends involved in it. Oh, absolutely. Music school that of that sort and yeah. that ilk, and so I. Well, I, I used to teach there. Oh well, then, then hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so, I'm gonna go get some bourbon. Yeah, and <laughs> we're gonna get to the bottom of this. Yeah, no. Well, basically, the 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 main thing that I will say about it is this: is that these are very uh, very pointed schools from the standpoint of the 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 agenda of what they have you do. Um, you know, it's a like I said, most of these are one year programs where you have these different levels of completion that you, you have like a level one, a level two, a level three, a level four broken down into quarters. And you, you know, you, you kind of just meet these levels of completion to go on. Now, that's not to say that some very successful people haven't come out of there. They absolutely have. But to me, one of the things, if you're going to study, there's something about studying over a longer period of time. In other words, you know, allowing the experience of school trying to milk as much out of these programs as you can, it's very difficult to mature that much and learn that much and really be able to absorb it in a year. It really is. Mm-hmm. And, and quite honestly, the, my experience of the type of uh, academic, and I'm talking about musical academic programs that they have in these schools, it's not quite up to snuff. Um, you know, the things like the theory and the ear training, that type of stuff, the uh, orchestration, instrumentation. Yeah, it's very, it's very condensed. And, and even at some, at some of the schools, uh, 
they have like uh, they literally call it theory for drummers. In other words, it's theory for idiots. It's really what it is, yeah. you know. And so I, I, I mean, sense. I, yeah, I, I have some issues with that, you know. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like that. It's, that if you want to go that route, it is a valid route. It wouldn't be the route that I would, um, that I would have most students take. I, I think it actually could be a good route, almost like a junior college thing. Mm-hmm. Hey, Moving. let's try. Yeah, let's try this for a year. And if it doesn't totally blow me out of the water and, you know, if I can kind of get into the hang of what it's sort of like to be in school of music, you know, maybe I can move forward from there. Yeah. And, and actually, there have been some students that have done that. You know, I think some of it, too, that, that really condensed curriculum of that. The one thing that even though people will say, oh, you get a lot of information and this and, you know, it's really focused on specifics and all that well that, that that's true but i think in a lot of ways um if you're gonna go the education route a a longer term scenario just to me seems to make more sense for the simple fact that it kind of allows you in a controlled and less competitive in the the true mm-hmm. sense of life it, it allows you to sort of find your your place and what in yourself and your strengths and you know it also gives you time to really kind of get an idea of what I want to do because you know like there's just a, there's just a lot to be said for uh, I having not done it you know it's kind of appealing to think like man if I'd have had those four years it is kind of mm-hmm really focus a little more on you know what I, what it is I want to do and instead of just being dropped in the fire like I was by choice right you know like there, there, there's some comfort in that to me looking back you know the grass is always greener maybe but wow you know four years for a year you know uh, you're still gonna just be like you're going to the wolves immediately and you know, yeah, John, you were really hitting on another point that I tell a lot of my students is that when you've got that four-year, when you got that four-year period of time that you're working on your craft, you're studying your craft, you're surrounded by all these people, it is also the absolute perfect time to kind of wean your way into the gigging professional world. True, you know, opportunities, right? You're you're kind of working, yeah. You're you're working yourself through school, so to speak, doing that and and taking on a little bit of of gig life as it comes along as well, and so you know it gives you a, a kind of a cushion of time mm-hmm. to do that. And and if you happen to be in a school that's in a large metropolitan area, if it's an area that you decide you want to set up shop in. For lack of a better term, you've gotten four years for free establishing yourself in that city. That's a good point. So you know, another thing too that is far more common now than used to be is some practical experience that a lot of times a lot of uh, schools didn't have was studio. Mm-hmm. I know where I. I'm going to say where I enrolled in school, because that's about the extent of it. Yeah. Um, there was a studio, a commercial music program, one of the first and earliest. 
And even in my just rebellious and horrifically misguided period of time in being at that school, I somehow slipped into like doing sessions and learned so much that it was low pressure, it was student projects and all that versus, you know, like when I came out and I'd started actually doing some sessions, it, it was really valuable. So there's some, there's some things that above and beyond technique and above and beyond reading and ensemble playing that, that there is now and some experience you can get. And imagine if you were in a program where you got to record regularly for four years without the, you know, the fear of this producer blackballing you or this mm-hmm. artist dogging you and all. I mean, that's, that's incredible in and of itself, you know. You know who did that exact same thing when he was in college? You. No. Who? I wish. You, you didn't get as much of that. No. John Robinson. Well, he was uh, a, you yeah. can tell. Yeah, he was, he was a Berkeley guy. He did a whole ton of sessions when he was in school there. Yeah, obviously it paid off. I think bit. I think he's paid off his tuition. Yeah, <laughs> you think so? I'm I'm pretty sure. You know, I'm I'm you, gonna I'm Facebook friends with him. I'm gonna ask him, but I, I kind of think that he doesn't owe Berkeley any money. You know what I heard? I heard that he did one of those weird things, man, where he got he got on, and I'm using my air quotes. He got on with the Quincy Jones Corporation. And as part of his pay, they paid off all of his student debt, mm. you know, kind of like a doctor. Well, <laughs> I know if I produced a record like Off the Wall yeah. and John Robinson played it as well as he did, I'd pay off the student <laughs> loans in his house because yeah. I'm going to make a whole bunch yeah. more than that. By the way, what I said was a big whole boatload of crap. <laughs> <laughs> we should have yeah. just let that one. You let be. that one go. That, yeah. that could have grown into yeah. this. Man, do you know? Do you know Quincy <laughs> Jones bought John Robinson an island, a whole island, and 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 a plane to get there, and and he had in his house. Um, they well well first they John Good took a tree from the island and made him a drum set, which is cool. And then Quincy also um, he surrounded the island with sharks, so all of these a hole drummers trying to get John's work couldn't make it on the island. And John just did all his sessions on the island. I, Did you know I, that? Well, I, I, I sorry. On top, well, on top of that, I heard that Carol Collado and John Good went into a death match for the last bit of wood on that island to make products for him. <laughs> so, oh, okay. well, anyway, look, uh, I think we have uh, a hint made, of things to come uh, on our pub crawl <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, exactly. I, I think that we have we have done a fairly good job talking about the different types of colleges and kind of what they um what they offer mm-hmm. what you can expect to uh uh pay as well or at least get you in the ballpark you know as kind of what to expect uh when you get out of school what's going to be facing you and you know what I, there is one last thing i do want to wrap it up by saying listen 
it's a given that if you're going to go and you're going to study in school, that you're going to do your best and that you're going to put some serious time and effort into it. Take it a step further. Do yourself a favor. Explore every possible option that you can find to get scholarships, grants, any kind of help that you can get to pay off school. Get those things and then work hard to keep them because the majority of the scholarships that you end up getting, if you are awarded one, if you just keep doing well, you keep them. In other words, it's not like they just, most of them don't kick in for a year and then, you know, that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Most of them are ongoing. They're like endowments, you know, that type thing. Provided you yeah. bringing your... Right. And I mean, that's... Man, that's I, right. I was on scholarship all of my uh, undergraduate school and that's the reason why I came out without owing any money was because of that. That and also that, you know, my tuition was basically the cost of a week's worth of uh, Happy Meals, mm -hmm. you know, when I went to school. Well, well listen, we have touched on, um, you know, this higher education uh, subject and, you know, the options and all that. And I would like to, just for conversation's sake, ask that at some point we kind of get into more of your experience with that. Sure. And, uh, you know, we can do that down the road. And I think, I think it would do, especially some of our younger, um, drummer friends and listeners that we hope latch on, uh, a really clear picture of what that is, you know, because while we're giving advice about, Hey, here's what mm -hmm. you can do and all that, I, you know, having a clear cut picture, of what that entails is a part of making a decision as well. So Absolutely. And you know, let me say this, but before we jettison and move on to another topic is that I, I can tell you for sure that there are a lot of things that have changed since I've been in schools, but there are, there have, there are a lot of things that have, there's some all truisms as well. You know, in other words, things that have not changed. And, and, and the one thing that I, God, I've always thought it was absolutely hilarious. And I know, you know, guys, that think the way I'm going to talk about here in a second. It's funny. There, there are a lot of, a lot of guys that, uh, especially older veteran guys that never went to school that think that it's some kind of like a, you know, it's like this, uh, high society, uh, very clinical type thing where you go to school and everybody, you know, the professors talking like British accents and all this. Stuff. And, and it's not that, you know, it's not the, uh, Mr. Jordan, uh, would you play quavers on your grand casa? It's not that at all, right. you know, but, but I think it's hilarious because there, there are people that think it's that and it's, it couldn't be further from that. You I know. always kind of was hoping I'd find the music school where it's like, Donald Sutherland's character in Animal House, you know, like yeah. all of my professors, which, I mean, as far as the music school goes, that's not out of the realm of possibility. It is so. not. So, but, you know, I mean, that's just a little. So we're going to make this a part A and B podcast. Next podcast, we're going to, our main topic will be the other side of this education. We'll call it, uh, this is the rock and roll side, this is the do-it-yourself uh, side of education, and we'll spend a good amount of time on that on the next podcast. So with that in mind, we will go ahead and we will go to our segments 
segments to, to wrap, up, wrap up the end of our podcast. And we're actually going to give you guys a double shot. Not one, but two. Yes, two short segments to end this podcast. And one of them is pretty much completely off the cuff. And it's due to a brilliant Facebook video post that John uh, made earlier in the week. And when I saw it, I said, this has got to be part of the podcast. And so we're just going to call this, this is going to be, this segment, we'll call it like tips from veteran uh, road dog drummers. We'll call it that. And so, John, why don't you just, uh, just espouse forth with your golden knowledge about uh, this video you posted? Well, this is all, I, I, I will preface this by saying that there was a little bit of controversy on that post just by way of jaded people man anything that's good's gonna have controversy with it so you know uh i'm a big fan of ludwig snare drums i think when it comes to metal snare drums they just and most people would agree i think that they just if they got one thing right in the history of that company it's their seamless metal shell drums whatever the content of the shell the makeup of the shell is it just it's they're just amazing it, well pretty much if you're a professional drummer and you don't own one of those i one, got it, i got nothing for you it's really a good idea to get, yeah at least an acrylite mm-hmm. but uh i'm a, a big proponent of lug locks and it's largely based on just the practical side of a drum not detuning and on you know a lot of gigs we do they're long and loud and that's just an inevitable pro- inevitable problem, and uh, I've used lug locks for years. I have a I bought a million of them at one point, and so I'm not real terribly interested in all the newfangled mm-hmm. things out there because I have these that work. You know, unfortunately, Ludwig recently in recent years, I'd say the last 15 years, they kind of changed the makeup of their hoops. I don't know if it's just specific to snare drums, but that's typically what I play as far as Ludwig's concerned. And the problem is you put a lug lock on and it will not go flush against the wall of the hoop. There's actually enough play that it will spin if you just force it and that plastic gives. And eventually they do that. But with velocity, they'll just back out. They don't work. As any good mechanic would say, well, there's your problem. That's a problem, yes. And so I uh, I put a video up about, I did a gig in Colorado the other night, and it was a backline kit, and by the grace of God, there was a Black Beauty up on the stand, which I was ecstatic about. But it was a newer one, and I knew I was going to have problems because mm-hmm. I bring lug locks with me among many other things. And uh, so I just kind of, in a flippant way, said, yeah, look at this crap. And this is also born out of someone arguing with me about that a while ago. Like, oh, no, they work on Ludwig drums. I'm like, no, they don't. They absolutely do not. Yeah. So um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, basically what it comes down to is uh, I switch out hoops. On my modern, I have a I have a Black Beauty, a couple newer Acrylites, and 
I think a chrome over brass, and they all have mm-hmm. different hoops on them because, like a Gibraltar hoop, will accommodate lug locks. Yep. And for me, psychologically, I want my stuff locked down. I don't want to be worried about that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there were some opinions. The majority of people were like, "Yeah, that happens to me." Oh, it, it absolutely. It, How can you factual. deny that? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's just people that want to argue for argument's right. sake. But nonetheless, um, if you buy a seven hundred dollar Black Beauty. Be prepared to either switch the hoops out if you want to use the traditional lug locks or look into some alternatives. There's some out there. Mm-hmm. A bit more expensive, a bit more cumbersome. Some of them have their little quirks as well. Right. But uh, that's something that just came out of nowhere that kind of was like, hey, some people aren't aware of this. Words of wisdom, John. Words of wisdom. Well, let me say this. It's absolutely 100% true because I've got a fairly modern chrome, six and a half by 14 chrome over brass. I think it's about 2002, Mm -hmm. something like that. Had to change the hoops out on that. Uh, but I do have uh, to, uh, to to do a callback, as they say in the broadcasting business, to last week's podcast with my ham-fisted uh, uh, <laughs> uh, windscreen on the yes. microphone. I it, have a, it was indie, yeah, it's not indie. I, I have a I have an indie slash life hack also for uh, the short uh, the the short lug lock on the too big or too wide hoop. I've done the old thing where I've put a little bit of gaff tape just on the end of uh, the lug locks mm-hmm. and then just put them on at a weird angle or a weird cant to where the, the, the gaff tape will rest up against the hoop, and that works okay too. So there's a cu- couple couple solutions for you kids, you lug lockers, lug locking Ludwig lovers. <laughs> well, <laughs> two, two things quickly. Um, yeah. One, Phil... He just his inner DIY <laughs> indie obsession is fascinating to me. I just love watching him wrestle with that. But uh, also, um, you a lot of stuff, man. Uh, you know, you got to mass produce stuff. You know, you're gonna have your mm-hmm. issues. You're gonna have your challenges. You're going to find out solutions, but man, odds are you, the beauty of Facebook, put it out there like, hey man, I'm having this problem. And 10 people are going to chime in with incredible solutions or ideas or, or maybe just laugh at you. But nonetheless, um, if you run into these kind of things, there's answers out there and or some guy who thinks he knows it all like me will tell you. Well, hey. I was going to say, that this is also the perfect chance to tell everybody to, to stay in touch with us. And if you've got any questions about anything like that, you know, we, we just happen to kind of, uh, you know, dumb upon these things and come up with our own solutions, which I'm going to give you mine, my little quick tip of the week here in a second. But yeah, if you guys have any questions uh, about if we've encountered this, that, or the other, please, please let us know. And we'll try to cover it on a, on a podcast. Or even if you have a life hack solution that you want to give to us, we'd like to hear that as well. I love it. Yeah. So my my little quick tip of the week is is another one of these great little things to save you time, money, and heartache. And uh, it also has to do, or I, it, you could apply it to your own kits and whatnot, but 
the, the real beauty and the real life-saving aspect of this has to do, again, when you're dealing with backline or rental kits. And that is, there's nothing worse than Cartner symbols around. You've taken them halfway around the country or the world, and you're playing on these different kits. You get to a drum set. You start taking the wing nuts off the cymbal stands, and all of a sudden, you see there's no cymbal sleeve. There's no nylon cymbal protector there. It's going to be metal on metal. Not good. And man, metal on metal is only good like when you're playing Slayer, right? You know? Or, yeah, yeah. sword fight. That means it's not slicing <laughs> right. you. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I, I, I'm broad in in my metal on metal vision yeah. here. But. So, or or I'm watching Game of Thrones a little <laughs> too much. So I'm I'm going to tell you my solution for this. Well, you can absolutely go to the music store and grab a little pack of five little nylon symbol protectors, and it's probably about eight bucks. But if you will go. To your local hardware store, like an Ace Hardware True Value, chances are somewhere in the back of that store on a bunch of big old spools attached to the wall, you're going to find clear vinyl tubing of about a million different diameters. Just take your cymbal stand, like just the top part, the part where the cymbal mount is actually, take it in there, find one that fits the diameter of that, have the attendant cut off three feet of that, and you will have a lifetime supply of symbol protectors for the grand total of about $2.50. Bam. There you go. Thank and, you, Uncle Phil. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, John and I both didn't even realize this, but we both, uh, on our persons, like in our symbol bags or, or whatever type of gig bag, we actually carry a handful of those with us wherever we go. Never leave home without it. No. Yeah. So there you go. You got, you got remedies for uh, Ludwig hoops with lug locks, and you got a lifetime supply of cymbal stand protectors. So, uh, and then our last little segment of the day, and this is going to be some good stuff. Uh, we're going to do each of us. We're going to do one of our favorite underrated drum tracks. Now, this is. This could be a, a track, it could be a, a, a drum track from an unknown drummer, it could be from a very well-known drummer, but, but what it's not going to be is, John's not going to go, oh man, my underrated drum track is Percaro on Rosanna. I mean, everybody knows that's a masterful drum track, you know. So, now if it was a Percaro track that not many people listen to, then it's perfectly acceptable. So, I'm going to go ahead and Take the bull by the horns on this Knock one it out. and go ahead and use an example of a guy that everybody knows, but not everybody knows this drum track. And so my underrated drum track comes from Steve Gadd. You ever hear him? He's, uh, did he play in like with ABBA or something like that? I think he played the hi-hat part on Dancing Queen. Oh. Whoever played that hi-hat part needs to be paid way more money than they were paid. Sounds like 15-inch quick beats to me. It sounds silky smooth to me. <laughs> so the, the, the Steve Gadd track that I'm talking about today is comes actually very early in his career uh, before he was really Steve Gadd, so to speak. And, and my bet is, is this was back when he was playing Gretsch we, drums, we too. Pre-Asia. 
Pre-Asia. Correct. Right. Correct. This was... B-A? This... B yes. Before yes. Asia. Exactly. Yeah. And this track is from 1974. It's from a jazz flutist. His name is Hubert Laws. It's from the album called In the Beginning. And it's a duet track between Steve Gadd and Hubert Laws. So it's flute and drums. Actually, John, it's piccolo and flute and drums. He's, he switches off between piccolo and flute. Right, I noticed. Yes, and it's the track Origin. It's a Sonny Rollins uh, jazz standard that these guys play as a samba. Uh, Hubert Laws plays piccolo at the beginning uh, for the melody for the head. Steve Gadd starts out with brushes. He is a samba god on that track. He plays brushes like a, just a beast. Switches halfway through uh, to sticks. Uh, by that time, Hubert's playing uh, flute, and I mean, it's just a rip-roaring track. I mean, there's really not that much to say about it other than it's it's almost like Gad is Gad's playing great samba time, but it, but there's so much space between these two guys that it's almost like a collaborative solo all the way through. Stunning. Yeah, it is a brilliant and, and, track. And there's some aside of Hubert that is pretty telling as well, like. I think a lot of people that might just sort of write him off as sort of, you know, smooth, jazzy almost, like at the right. beginning of that whole. But he's really blowing on this track, and it'll shock you as well. But Steve is a star. It's insane. You can really tell that Gad is, he's, he is not playing it safe. He no. is he is searching man on this track and yeah. he is finding stuff and and you know in that great kind of a of a of a gad rudimental type way man he brings a very unique vibe to the samba you know that that's not it's not a let me go ahead and say this it's not a traditional samba so I mean don't don't feel like you know when you guys find this track and you can easily find it on on YouTube by the way easily find it on YouTube um, you know he he's he's very much Steve Gadd, even though it's early Steve Gadd. He's very much Steve Gadd on that track. So that's that's my great uh, unsung track for uh, this week. It's Arigen by Hubert Laws from the In the Beginning record, Steve Gadd on drums. John, what do you have? I have... uh, It's kind of a record that I have always just been obsessed with and loved is a band called Little Village and that's essentially John Hyatt's Bring the Family it's basically it's the same band they just kind of do an extension in a lot of ways of of the vibe of that record a little more um, cutting edge and and a little more risky recording wise maybe sonically and all that but uh, Jim is just his magic self throughout the whole record. Um, and by Jim, we're talking about Keltner. Uh, Jim Keltner. I'm yes. very sorry. I thought I prefaced that. Jim Keltner, the the groove pig that is just so amazingly quirky and musical and just engaging on so many levels. But there's one track in particular that... I, I wish more people kind of focus on it. It's called Inside Job. It's kind of a funky mid-tempo thing. But there's just this lope and this 
somewhat unconventional approach to the groove and the sounds. And there's one fill in particular that uh, this it's it's basically kind of at the beginning of the chorus. It sort of uh, happens more than once. But I, I without getting deep into what it is, I just encourage you to listen to a really cool track by a master at the top of his game, obviously playing with some people he's so ridiculously comfortable with that, and, and allow him the freedom to be quirky in, in that awesome way Jim is that doesn't take away at all from the music. It's a it's an it's an exceptionally great track that I really want you to check out. Inside Job by Little Village. One thing about Keltner also, just his drum sounds that he gets, brilliant, incredible, incredible sound. And and I mean naturally that is a, a testament to the of course the recording process. But the person hitting them has a bit to do with it as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, it, there there's just been too many incredible and unique tracks that Jim's done sonically that you have to know he's very much involved in what that what that is and how it translates and focus from the word go on mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really hearing this and let's let's find it I think he's probably probably more than just about everybody I can think of Steve Jordan's kind of up there mm-hmm. right now sonically he's really got his thing dialed in but drummers in particular I think those two they really have kind of a head and shoulders above everybody with that and both very aware and knowledgeable and focused on getting what they're hearing in their head aside from that being an underrated track or an underappreciated you could, you could literally say that Jim Keltner himself is oh. underrated underappreciated as crazy as that sounds it, it's true. but it's true yeah. it's absolutely true i mean his discography is just insane on top of that he was the inspiration for Jeff Picaro wearing cowboy boots and vests nips and probably would wear sunglasses and he wasn't blind like I am. <laughs> I um, thought you were talking about Picaro. Picaro, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he would have had the aviator yeah. sunglasses yeah. as well, but he's but he can't see, so he had to yeah. wear real glasses. I don't but given the choice, he would have gotten prescription yeah. aviator Ray Vans and just gone all gym. Well, and he'll admit that. That's the beauty of it. John, I think that's a very that's that's a very appropriate place to end to this episode. All right. Well, guys, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, as we talked about before, there's going to be a part B to this podcast or a part two to this podcast that we're going to record. We'll come to you next week. Until that time, keep it in the pocket. Better. Better.